From Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. Last month, Tunisia's president, Kai Saeed, decided to consolidate power around himself by suspending parliament, firing his prime minister, and assuming leadership of the defense, interior, and justice ministries. This week, we'll get an update on the political crisis in Tunisia from Tunisian scholar and political analyst Mohamed Hammami. Later in the program, we speak with Ilham Fakhro, a senior analyst at the International Crisis Group, about the Abraham Accords. On August 13th of last year, United States brokered a normalization agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, which was soon followed by Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. Stay with us. Last month, Tunisia's president, Kai Saeed, abruptly suspended parliament and consolidated power around himself in a move that has been both decried by critics as a coup d'etat and enthusiastically endorsed by an overwhelming majority of Tunisians fed up with the post-Ben Ali dictatorship status quo, which has seen the economic lot of the average Tunisian worsen further since the advent of formal democracy in 2011. Khalil Bendib spoke with Tunisian scholar Mohamed Hammami about current developments in Tunisia and the prospects for the president's potential success in resolving his country's intractable problems. Mohammed, when we last spoke a month ago, President Qais Sayyid had suspended the parliament and consolidated governmental powers around himself. He had on that occasion only spoken of a 30-day suspension, but has since extended the suspension to an indefinite period of time. Would you call this a coup, like many others have, or a self-coup? What's your assessment 30, 40 days later? Like you said, a month after the coup, uh, the self-coup of July 25th, Tunisia's recently elected president decided to extend the exceptional measures, the application of exceptional measures, or the state of exception for a different amount of time. Whether a coup or not, is, I think, analytically important, but politically not relevant anymore in Tunisia, because calling it a coup or not does not bring anything to the discussion. Most of political actors in Tunisia are over that debate right now, with the exception probably of Nahda's party, the Islamist party. This doesn't mean, however, that the political actors I'm referring to are supportive of what Tayyid is doing or they trust him or so it, it's much more complicated. It's more muted opposition. Tell us what the Nahda is saying these days. Well, Nahda initially, before the extension of the state of exception, they stopped using the word coup, but now they're using it again. They are going through a major internal crisis. The leader and founder of the party, uh, Rajid Ghanoushi, decided to dissolve the uh, executive bureau of the party. There is a strong divergence of opinion regarding 
what strategy or what approach should the party adopt right now in the middle of this crisis it can be even described as an existential crisis for a Nahva. It can lead to its disappearance or it's not clear that there are people who young members of what I mean, young meaning in their 40s, much younger than the, the leader is now, I think in, in his 80s probably, who signed the petition contesting Raraj Ghanoussi's confrontational approach. At the same time, representative of Nahda here in the United States are been calling for U.S. intervention in the Tunisian context, for example, withholding the supply of vaccine, and that triggered wow. a strong response from many political actors in Tunisia. So the situation with Nahda is, is a bit chaotic right now. How about the powerful labor federation, the UGTT? What is their attitude right now? Well, UGTT initially was very careful. They didn't react directly after the announcement of the state of exception on July 25th. It took them hours of consultation. The meeting of the executive bureau was very long and there was a diversity of views. They're not using the word coup for several reasons. However, they are refusing to support blindly Qaisaid. The Secretary General of the Union said that they refused to deify the president. They critiqued him for his alignment, his geopolitical alignment with extremely problematic regimes in the region, like Sisi's regime in Egypt, or authoritarian Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia, or the Emirates, or Bahrain, and Although they didn't mention Algeria, but Saeed is also aligned with Algeria's political leadership. In addition to that, UGTT has been pressuring the president, or at least calling openly for the appointment of a prime minister, because until now, we don't have a prime minister, and Saeed is concentrating executive powers, but nothing is really happening at the same time. So this is, I think, overall the position of UGT. However, in addition to the position, it's important to mention that the personal relation between UGTT, UGTT's leadership and Aïssaïd is not that great right now. They tried to reach out to him several times, to ask for meetings, consultations, but no response from the presidency. Saïd is somehow self-isolating himself from most political actors in the country, including UGT. So what are we to make of this uh, alignment or this uh, overt support uh, from authoritarian regimes like Saudi Arabia and, and Algeria to a certain extent? Is this a bad sign for Tunisian democracy that he would be so enthusiastically received by people like that? Or can the president handle this without compromising his independence? I think he needed some level of support to make his decisions, but I don't think it's a good sign. In, in my research, I rely a lot on, on network theory. And one of the principles in network theory is something called homophilia, homophily, meaning people who are alike tend to bond together. People who have commonalities tend to bond together. So the fact that Said is bonding with authoritarian rulers is not a good sign. The fact that they are his only in relies right now is also not a good, a good sign. Some people claim that they might probably support financially 
Tunisia during this crisis, the financial crisis which we're going, they, their aid may present an alternative to the conditioned funding of Western countries, either bilateral aid or, or multilateral to the EU, World Bank and IMF. But I don't think they can provide the necessary amount of funding that Tunisia needs. So this alliance may be tactical to kind of give the impression that he's not isolated geopolitically, but in the middle and long run, I don't think it's sustainable or it's useful. You were quoted in an article in uh, Nouvelle Observateur in France as saying that even if the president were so inclined, he might not have the wherewithal to pull off consolidation of, of power in the long run. He doesn't have a party that he can rely on. He doesn't have such strong allies. Tell us more about this situation. Is this a man who could not become another Ben Ali or another Bourguiba? What are his resources to consolidate authoritarian rule if he were so inclined? If we start from the hypothesis that Saeed can be interested in consolidating his power and bringing us back to the pre-2011 type of authoritarianism, we should look at his alliances uh, with the most strategic actors in the country that he needs to have a control over the society. Ujidity is one of them. Historically, Bourguiba, in the context of what we call the national unity, kind of like the nationalism of the post-colonial nationalism, everyone needs to be supportive of each other. Bourguiba succeeded in controlling Ujidity until the, uh, the late 70s. But as soon as that, there was a split and Ujidity became more independent, the regime faced a major crisis and ended up collapsing. Then Ben Ali came again. He managed to co-opt the leadership of Ujidite and build an alliance with the union to control and govern the workers and the masses. That's the most important. Well, that's how Ujidite is relevant here. And so, so far, Ujidite is not willing to build such a alliance. It's difficult for him to co-opt the union for several reasons. That's number one. Number two, in order to consolidate power, you need at least equal support among the elites who are involved in decision-making, who own the resources and the wealth needed for the government need to implement policies and to rule simply. So in order to consolidate his power, he needs also a level of support from business elites. And he is trying, and he's been trying to, to mobilize that support by send, sending positive signals since the very beginning of his coup, saying that there will be no confiscation, that he respects and value what he called national capital. He invited people from the financial lobby, despite the fact that they are strongly tied to Ben Ali regime and to corrupt political and business actors. He tried to build an alliance with them work with them, say that he's not against them, but it doesn't seem so far that business elites in the country are interested in supporting someone who doesn't really have any understanding of the economy. And he was pretty explicit about that. Someone who doesn't have a clear plan on what he wants to do. So aside from his popularity, he is popular, but aside from that, he doesn't have any source of strength 
that can help him to consolidate his power. And I would add to that, that if we go to his writings and to his interviews, interviews that he did with news media since 2011, there are so many, we see that he's not actually even interested in establishing an authoritarian regime. He's not the kind of person who would argue that we need a strong man to make things done. That's not an argument that we found. He's not critical of democracy in itself. He, he is more willing to push toward a more radical form of democracy or more unconventional form of democracy. He, in the interviews that I was referring to, he makes explicit allusion to the importance of separation of power within democratic context. Also recently, he mentioned, he said he quoted actually the good, although I don't think it's a great example to follow, but he said that at this age, he's not interested in becoming a dictator, which is exactly what de Gaulle said in, in 58. Gaulle, the late uh, president of France and liberator of France during World yes, War II. Yes, yes. And who was also prime minister and organized a coup, although most French people wouldn't call it a coup, to put an end to the parliamentary, to the Fourth French Republic, forces the parliament to give him full authority to write a new constitution without having a constitutional assembly, and he passed the constitution by referendum. So it seems that Said wants to follow his, his steps, the steps of de Gaulle. So I personally don't think that Said is really interested in establishing a strong authoritarian regime, and I don't think he has the capacity to do it. So tell us more about this uh, possible direction that he's trying to follow, which is this neo-De Gaullian <laughs> uh, <laughs> model. Is he suspected to want to push a new constitution, kind of abrogate the current one and, and put something in place that would be more friendly to his style of governing? What is he trying to do, in your opinion, if you can speculate? He's been actually explicit about what he wants to do several times, at least since 2012, which is only one year after the revolution. He's been calling for what he called a third constitution transition. He disagreed with the way the National Council Assembly in 2011 was elected. He disagreed with the way the discussions on the constitution were going. And he has his own view of what the political system would look like. So even during the 2013 crisis, he called for the distribution. If he supported the idea of the distribution of the parliament in, or in drafting of a new constitution, that would be different from what the ANC was doing during the 2011-2014 period. Right now, he would like, or it seems that he would like to either change the entire constitution and replaced by a new one, or make major constitutional amendments that would transform the executive branch of the government in a way that all powers would be concentrated in the presidency instead of having a prime minister and a president with divided with prerogatives, and having at the same time a parliament that is elected indirectly with the system of recall that would put an end to the free mandate. So meaning a representative of the, of the people would have to stick to their promises. And if they don't, the population or their constituencies would have the right to recall them. He sometimes makes explicit references to the existence of the system of recall in the US, but the system of elections is, is kind of weird and, and unconventional. He would like to 
start the process of selection of national representative at the very local level. So people would choose representative of their neighborhoods and all the representative of the neighborhoods in the locality would form a local council. And out of, out of these local councils, someone or an institution would pick randomly members of regional councils, that would be the kind of regional government. And finally, also through a random selection, kind of lottery system, that would pick up uh, members of the national parliament. And he thinks that it would solve the problem or the, it would address the crisis of representativity by increasing the representation of the masses and reducing the uh, the representation of elites, so randomness in this kind of setting would decrease the representation of small groups like elites, and elites usually are small. That's what it seems that he's trying to do. And even yesterday, I think, or two days ago, as we're recording, the G7 published a statement, the ambassadors of the G7 countries in Tunisia published a statement making explicit references to constitutional reforms. They said that they are willing to support constitutional reforms if they are done democratically. So isn't that that's where we're going? So how does he intend to affect serious reform without a parliament and not risk uh, appearing autocratic? Can he suspend the current constitution and adopt a new one without uh, the usual channels? How does he do something like that? He can do that by simply replicating what we did in 2011 think that the constitution is no longer applicable. It doesn't represent the will of the people anymore. And since the sovereignty of the people is higher than the sovereignty than the constitution itself, then we can go to a referendum. And that's the idea that it seems, and there are, I don't want to talk about rumors right now, but the idea that he would prepare either a whole new constitution or major constitutional reforms, and then go directly to a referendum. Okay. And the result of the referendum would have a higher authority than the constitution itself. So the president's main rival during the election that brought him to power, Nabil Qarwi, was arrested a few days ago in Algeria on suspicions of money laundering. And the former head of the anti-corruption authority also has been placed under house arrest. Is this part of the president's plan to deliver on promises to tackle corruption in Tunisia? Or is this just window dressing designed to shore up support for his new regime? I don't think that the arrest of uh, Nabil Qarwi and his brother Ghazi Qarwi have anything to do with Sayed. I think they probably, and here I'm speculating, they probably felt that the situation was risky for them and they decided to leave the country and they were caught there. So... Mm. So far, there, I wouldn't see any sign of involvement of Tunisian authorities or of Qaisaid in what happened. However, the putting the former head of the Independent Anti-Corruption National Committee and the house arrest was much more controversial. First of all, the police refused to give a copy of the order of house arrest to Shoukit Bib, the name of the head of the Anti-Corruption Committee. In addition to that, some people read that arrest as a kind of revenge against him because he was involved in the delegitimization of the first government appointed after the 2000 and 
2019 election that end up resigning. For people who are not familiar with what I'm, I'm talking to right now, in 2019, Isis Saeed chose Elias as a prime minister. But a few months later, a scandal of conflict of interest emerged and Nahda, among other actors, pushed for the resignation of that government. And Shokri Tbib, the head of the, of the National Anti-Corruption Committee, is one of the several actors who confirmed the existence of a situation of conflict of interest. So some people think that putting him under house arrest is a kind of revenge. He's been posting a lot on his social, on his Facebook page, pictures of several political actors visiting him in his house and showing and expressing his support. Yeah, it's not clear. I don't think Saeed is willing to target the most important and central nodes in the corruption networks in the country. In fact, he invited some of them and said that he's willing to work with them. And here I'm referring to the general director of, of a bank owned by Ben Ali's in-laws. He also, the, the head of the largest business association, Utika, who we also accused of corruption, so invited him and called him patriotic and asked him and others to cooperate to reduce the prices of goods in general. So I think that so far the house arrests that we saw do not reflect a genuine anti-corruption effort that really tries to clean up the country from the what some people call the endemic corruption that we've been seeing during the last years. Give us an example of this corruption. I know Ben Ali's uh, family or his uh, in-laws were deeply involved. Give us just an example. Give us what is it that makes the Tunisians so enraged and so determined to root out this corruption? Well, first of all here, or at least when people talk about corruption, they don't necessarily mean corruption in the legal sense. It can be uh, abuse of power that serve private interest and not public interest, meaning, for example, and this is an example that is usually was given by Syed several times, lobbying the parliament to pass articles in the yearly financial law to create tax breaks for political businesses. This is a form of, is seen and described as corruption. The existence of this conflict of interest, people who run for office just to have access to inside information they use in business. Historically, processes of privatization were referred to as, as a key example of, of corruption. These are a few examples. Corruption also in, in public buildings. The types of corruption are pretty diverse. Crony capitalism like happens in this well, country, for example. Yeah, oh. well, that's something else. I disagree with that narrative. The problem of the narrative of crony capitalism it represents the existence of connection between businesses and, and political actors and as an anomaly, as something that is a form of capitalism that is not good. But actually, no, that's how things work everywhere in the world. Right. That was my businesses point. Are, are, are tied to political actors in different ways, to family ties like the World Bank focused on or through like after people who run for office. Businesses are social actors. They do have different form of, of ties with other social actors and, and elite actors. 
in the capitalist context, it is totally expected to find connections between politics and business. So the narrative of crony capitalism tend to present capitalism in non-Western societies, initially started with Eastern Asia and more recently with the Middle East and in North Africa, tend to present as a bad form of capitalism. But in reality, no, that's simply how capitalism works. Certainly in this country, it does. <laughs> we had the president exactly. self-dealing and there was nothing that they could do about it. Exactly. Uh, I mean, in Tunisia, ironically, people tend to idealize the U.S. model when it comes to <laughs> to form of, of capitalism. Recently, in a room, a clubhouse room with the, with the leader of Atayar, one of the main centrist party, I claim to be involved in anti-corruption effort and they care a lot about corruption. So I asked him, can you give me an example of a country where business is separate, where business and politics are not tied to each other? He told me the United States. Yeah. It was very <laughs> ironic. And yeah. he was telling about how, how the FBI is investigating Trump and uh, it gives an image of how Unfortunately, political actors who focus too much on corruption do not have a developed understanding of the way capitalism works in other countries. Mohammed, as the last question I'd like to ask you, the Tunisian state is on the verge of bankruptcy. It uh, needs at least $3 billion this year to pay foreign debts and wages of hundreds of thousands of employees in the public sector. What can a more presidential regime and more representative regime as Qais Saeed is uh, dreaming up as we speak, what can it do in the near to mid-term to accomplish economically what the parliamentary system failed to do? Well, to answer to your question, to the last part of the question, I don't think that the type of regime matters at all. Having uh, someone like Saeed as a president with full executive prerogatives will not really help anything. He, he was explicit about, about his ignorance about economics and economic issues. He said that explicitly. He's someone who doesn't even make the difference between numbers, between millions and billions. And he was also explicit about that. So it won't change anything. However, the idea that Tunisia is on the verge of bankruptcy is not really something that I would agree on historically political actors in Tunisia prioritize the payment of debt over anything else. So if they have to choose between cutting military expenses, let's say, and and paying debt, they would do that. And then the other part of the question is regarding salaries. In Tunisia, we have, since the national currency is not convertible, we have a kind of dual system of accounting. So most of the reserve of foreign currencies are not used to pay salaries. Tunisians don't get paid in US dollars or in euros. They get paid in the local currency that is produced by the central bank and not really recognized internationally. So again, in the worst case scenario, they can simply print money. It would have probably or probably not a strong effect on inflation and it's already high very high, it's more than 6%, but they don't need foreign currency to pay wages of state employees. That's a narrative that is usually given or presented by political actors in, in, during crises or critical periods 
to push the masses to accept unpopular economic decisions, claiming that if we don't pass these reforms, you won't get paid. So what can he do that is positive, that could actually make a positive difference in the lot of the average Tunisian that hasn't happened in in 10 years post-dictatorship? He needs to develop an entire plan of economic reforms that targets several sectors of the economy, but he's very far from doing that. I don't think we have enough time here to cover all the sectors that we need to reform. But one of the major problems that we have is, for example, the quality of public services. Several public institutions are understaffed because the IMF is opposing recruiting to the public sector. Other problems like the structure unemployment that was always, since the independence, was fluctuating around 15%. And neither Ben Ali nor Bourguiba succeeded in reducing it. I don't think any political actors in Tunisia right now can really address these problems. It needs a genuine and developed, sophisticated understanding of the way economic actors coordinate their actions in the country. The specificities of capitalism in Tunisia inside is very far from that level of understanding. There are rumors that he's consulting informally with a few economists, but he does not have economic advisors in his team. He's been making popular calls on Facebook, calling merchants to reduce their prices. That's his way to fight inflation. It didn't work at all. In fact, uh, the price of food increased during the last uh, month. So I don't think Saeed will be able to respond to the expectations of Tunisians. So you don't sound at this point very optimistic about his instincts to just consolidate power and see what happens. You're not that impressed with his abilities to do what, what he seems to be trying to do. There is a quite large consensus among observers and actors in Tunisian politics that he does not have the capacity to do that. And I think that's why Jete have been calling for the appointment of a prime minister, at least someone who does understand basic economic rules and laws. So I'm not impressed, and I'm not the only one who's not impressed. Mohammed Hammami is a Tunisian scholar, political analyst, and researcher. He spoke with Khalil Bendib from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. On August 13th of last year, Donald Trump announced the normalization of diplomatic relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Soon after, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan signed similar agreements with Israel. What became known as the Abraham Accords included the establishment of embassies, commercial air routes, cooperation in the areas of tourism, innovation and technology, trade, and more. So a year after the signing of the Abraham Accords, what has been the outcome of the normalization deal? 
And will other Arab countries follow the steps of United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan? To learn more, Mira Nabulsi speaks with Ilham Fakhro, a senior analyst at the International Crisis Group. She focuses on security, conflict, and governance in the Gulf region. It's been about a year since the signing of the Abraham Accords, which was brokered by the U.S. and was signed between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Three other Arab states, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, later followed the United Arab Emirates in normalizing relationships with Israel. Can you give us a quick overview of some of the main tenets of the Accords, especially when it concerns the UAE-Israel agreement? If we look at what these documents actually contain, the Abraham Accords are three separate documents. You have the Abraham Accords Declaration, which is kind of a 200-word declaration of purpose between the involved states, Bahrain, the UAE, and Israel. Then you have a one-page-long declaration of peace and cooperation and friendly relations between Bahrain and Israel. That's kind of a page long that just vaguely outlines their intention to normalize ties. And the third kind of constituent part of the Accords is a treaty of peace, diplomatic relations, and normalization between UAE and Israel. It's about seven pages long and also kind of discusses diplomatic relations, their intention to establish economic ties and fully normalize diplomatic relations. So these documents are not that detailed. They're not that long. In some places, they're only a couple of paragraphs. And they make vague and broad reference to the establishment of friendly ties and diplomatic relations. They're nothing like the kind of very detailed peace treaties that Israel signed with Egypt and Jordan, which were much more complex. They were longer. Obviously, those involved issues of land and borders that had to be hashed out. Despite the kind of broad nature of these declarations, they've been used in the case of the UAE to really cement economic ties between the two states. Um, So in the year since signing the Accords, there's been nearly just over half a billion dollars in trade between the two states. In addition to that, uh, the UAE has really emphasized the aspect of, of this that is related to religious tolerance and kind of cultural exchange and understanding. The UAE is very eager to portray the Accords as a step forward in religious tolerance in a region that has been plagued with conflict and, and religious clashes and misunderstanding. So in this sense, it sees itself as being quite forward thinking in this area and has been keen to portray the Accords as evidence of, of that kind of, uh, of a move towards religious harmony in the region. Now, there's a third aspect to this, which is the security aspect. Israel and the UAE do see eye to eye on various issues, the most notable being the threat from Iran. They have a common threat perception that Iran poses a danger to the region, let's say. There is nothing in the Abraham Accords that is specifically related to security cooperation, but ties between Israel and the UAE in areas of cybersecurity and cyber technology have been on the increase in in the past decade. So the Abraham Accords do also facilitate the ability of the UAE to rely on Israeli technology in cybersecurity, And it also brings the relationship out into the open, particularly while there is no overt security cooperation resulting from the accords, it does facilitate the UAE's access to cybersecurity and cyber technology from Israel. And one of the main promises that were put forth early on was uh, the halting of annexation of West Bank land. And the Accords also set itself to be building for a long-lasting peace in the region. One year after, we've seen none of that get fulfilled. How do you assess the impact on Palestinians? So initially, this was billed as a win for the Palestinians. The UAE 
portrayed the Accords as sort of securing an end to plans for annexation in the West Bank. And in that sense, it was very much pitched as a win for the Palestinians. Unfortunately, that never happened. The day after the Accords were announced, Prime Minister Netanyahu made it clear that he would not be suspending annexation. He was only, I believe the language was temporarily halting annexation. He made it clear that there would be no such commitment from the Israeli side. That led to kind of hostile exchanges from Palestinian diplomats who accused the UAE of trying to pull the wool over, over everyone's eye, of trying to kind of trick everybody into thinking that there was some gain for the Palestinians when in fact there wasn't. In the years since then, I think it's been clear that the Accords really haven't had much to do with the Palestinians at all. Constructions of settlements continues in the West Bank. There's very little progress on any kind of land for peace deal. And really, the UAE hasn't even really tried to push that. I think it's been very clear that this is an agreement that brings together two like-minded states. There are huge economic benefits for the UAE in particular. It's tried to use it for its own messaging as a kind of build itself as a beacon of tolerance in the region. But uh, there have been really very few concrete gains for the Palestinians at all. And I think it's notable to also say that there hasn't been even an attempt to do so. I think initially there was talk of perhaps the UAE being able to use its newfound relationship with Israel to exert some leverage on the peace process or to get it moving in some way. There really hasn't been any attempt to even do that. So I think it's very clear in the first year that that this wasn't about the Palestinians at all. And in a piece you wrote for our Marib or the Middle East Research and Information Project, you talk about the change in the UAE's framing and discourse of what the Accords were at the beginning and then what we see kind of right now. Can you a little bit expand on that, especially because you talk a little bit about the discrepancies in the Arabic and English versions of the joint communique that was released by the UAE? Absolutely. So initially, I think like I just mentioned, this was portrayed as as being in the interests of the Palestinians. Even though that's not in the actual text of the Accords, when Emirati decision makers and leaders announced that they were making peace with Israel, they billed it as a win for the Palestinians. This is how they talked about it. This is how they spoke about it in, in the first week, really. As it became clear that Netanyahu was not willing to suspend annexation, Then the discourse really shifted towards economic opportunity. This became about, look, it's a time of economic difficulty due to COVID, um, and it's time to kind of expand our economic ties with our neighbors. And and this is, you know, in the interests of everybody, really. In private, at the same time, UAE officials also expressed their kind of broader security interests in moving forward with the peace agreement with Israel, basically on the basis that Israel is on the same page with regard to Iran. So this is how really effectively the discourse around the Accords has shifted from being about the Palestinians to being about the economy and the need for more growth opportunities to finally in private really being about some of these broader security concerns and about the UAE's broader desire to build ties with those in the neighborhood it sees as reliable partners. In terms of the Arabic and English versions, there was some discrepancy for sure. I don't need to go into kind of the exact details, but it it was related to kind of the translation of suspension of annexation. And this is where the ambiguity lied. In English, it appeared that there was some ambiguity over whether there was temporary suspension of annexation or kind of a more permanent commitment to do so. Whereas in Arabic, it did appear that the commitment was permanent, which is what led some Palestinian diplomats to accuse the UAE of trying to be deceptive on this front because of the kind of the variation in in the two texts. 
I want us to talk a little bit about the public opinion across the Arab world, but specifically in the Gulf and in the UAE. On social media, we've seen some photo ops, I guess we can call them, uh, Emiratis welcoming Israelis, Emirati children waving Israeli flags. It's still, to be honest, a little bit hard to really gauge and get a better understanding of the Emirati public opinion, and then as well, like the reaction from the civil society. So from your observation and just being there, how did average people react? And what was the response like from also civil society organizations? Absolutely. So when this was first announced, let's remember that it was announced as something that was in the interests of Palestinians, right? It was seen as the UAE is going to make peace with Israel and at the same time secure certain wins for the Palestinians as well. With this in mind, a lot of Emiratis came out and were very eager to support their government's decision. They waved Israeli flags. They celebrated all of this. I think believing that there may not necessarily be a conflict of interest between the two sides, almost as if the two would finally be reconcilable. I think a lot of other kind of younger demographics were excited about the economic opportunities that this could represent in areas of tech and so on. So we did see some public enthusiasm for the accords in the UAE. Having said that, it's extremely difficult to gauge opposition. Opposition parties aren't really allowed. It's kind of a closed system that doesn't tolerate too much dissent. So it's it's always very difficult to, to be able to say it's easier to, to, to kind of track support for something because you'd see it expressed, whereas the sense is, is usually quieter. Having said that, in Bahrain, dissent was much clearer to gauge because the country is kind of more open to those kinds of opinions. So hashtags kind of rejecting the normalization deals jumped to number one trending topics on Twitter. There were petitions from civil society actors in Bahrain rejecting this. All kinds of groups from trade unions to women's organizations to student groups all kind of signed various petitions expressing their opposition. There were even smaller protests against the agreement in Bahrain, bearing in mind that it was during lockdown. And so, again, the numbers were perhaps smaller than they would have been at a normal time. Having said that, though, even in the UAE, there's some measurable opposition to the accords that I think we could also look at. A group of Emirati civil society actors actually came out and did also express their opposition to this through a petition through a letter in which they signed. Um, I believe there are about 30 or so people. So I think it's significant to, to just kind of note that. At the same time, there was also a, a poll published by Washington Institute for Near East Policy several months prior to the Accords, where they had interviewed a broad-based of UAE nationals and asked the question, do you think ties with Israel would be desirable? And the poll found that 80% of those Emiratis polled had said no. So it's mixed data in all of this. Yes, we did see some support. The poll suggests that prior to the signing, there really wasn't much support. At the same time, there was some opposition by people willing to, to kind of put their names to it, bearing in mind the broader environment that really isn't very tolerant at the time. So I think it's fair to say that some did support it initially and, and some didn't even though we're not really able to get a sense of numbers, 
think that's mm-hmm. a fair assessment. And just that leads me to kind of think about BDS, boycott, divestment and sanctions efforts, especially by, you know, Palestinians and their allies and supporters in the West and the advances the movement has made over the past few years, especially in the in the US and in Europe, to the extent that we're right now perhaps seeing that conversation a little bit on the more mainstream outlets and even in the circles of the political establishment in the US. At the same time, we're seeing this regression, perhaps, in the Arab world, where I feel like from a Palestinian perspective, at least, there's a concern that obviously more normalization, more states engaging with Israel could impact the public opinion in the Arab world that generally is supportive of Palestinians and in support always anytime there's an escalation. How do you view that? Because it feels like sometimes like we're advancing where it was a lot harder to advance from a Palestinian perspective versus in the Arab world that maybe many Palestinians took for granted, we are potentially losing ground when it comes to support from civil society and and the Arab street more broadly. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I think this is, uh, you know, kind of one of the major discussions that has had to kind of you know, be revived after these accords is, okay, we maybe took the Arab world for granted as supporters of the Palestinians, and now it almost feels like there's more support in certain Western countries or among certain circles in the West than even in the Arab world. I think I do want to point out that when the attacks on Gaza happened, there was an outpouring of support for the Palestinians in both the UAE and in Bahrain that almost seemed to contradict the earlier mood in the UAE of of kind of being celebratory towards the Accords. Prominent Emiratis, including academics, including a few public intellectuals, were very vocal about expressing their support for the Palestinians in this moment when they were targeted in Gaza and so on. I think that was a very interesting shift. In Bahrain as well, there was an outpouring of support on social media, calls for the Abraham Accords to be rescinded prominent voices really like expressing their support for the cause. So I think it's premature to kind of jump to the conclusion that the Arab street doesn't care or that people don't care. I think many do. And if you really look into the reaction, kind of following what happened in Gaza, I think it's very visible to see that there was a lot of support on the side and perhaps some quieter questioning of what had gone on, of what kind of the difference between state policy and public opinion. I think that kind of became clear. I think we have to look at how these accords were signed and and under what circumstances. Even in Israel, the foreign minister and defense minister, we now know, were not consulted before these agreements were made. Netanyahu just went ahead and went ahead with this decision, which almost feels like it was done on a personal basis between him and between those leaders that were involved and between, you know, Krishna. The situation around the accords was so personalized, it really wasn't so much an extension of state policy as it was a reflection of the personal relationship between those involved. And I think we can understand that on the Gulf side as well. To what extent were people consulted? To what extent was civil society involved? Well, they really weren't. This was very much a top-down decision that surprised everybody. So I think if we if we really understand it in this sense, it becomes possible to get a grasp of the divide between what many in civil society continue to feel and believe, which is support for the Palestinians. This is an issue that the older generation grew up with. It was one of the core tenets of, I would say, Gulf identity, along with sort of Islam um, and Arabism. Support for the Palestinians is something that most people grew up with. They were taught in school. 
and one of the few political issues that people feel comfortable expressing, even when politics is off limits, support for the Palestinians really never was, and it's something that people were proud to express. So that doesn't go away overnight, even for the younger generation. I think some are quite tuned in and they understand the issues involved. So I would definitely say that there's a gap between state policy and what the average citizen, I think, continues to believe. I want to go back to the issue of Iran. So the current American administration seems to be way less focused on the Middle East and much more fixated on China. And earlier this week, the new Israeli prime minister, Naftali Bennett, met with President Biden and was urging him not to renew the nuclear deal with Iran. And Biden seems to be still interested in a sort of a deal with them. How do you think the alliance with Israel helps the UAE in its rivalry with with Iran, especially in light of the new American administration? Well, I think it's interesting because the two countries are broadly on the same page when it comes to Iran in terms of perceiving it as a long-term threat in the region. Both the UAE and Israel view it as an unstable radical actor that is exporting Islamism and supporting non-state actors, which they view as a threat. So even its support for the Houthis in Yemen or for Hezbollah in Lebanon, for the Hashd forces in Iraq is a major issue for the UAE. When they view this as a long-term, long-term threat, I think the difference is, however, in the way that they respond to this perception. The UAE has been much more careful than Israel. It is much more worried. It views Iran as a much more immediate threat because it is in its backyard, effectively. There is a very small distance between the two countries. The UAE was very aware under the Trump administration of just how vulnerable it was to an Iranian attack. For example, those that took place in 2019, tanker attacks off the coast of the UAE. It felt very vulnerable after that and pursued a policy of de-escalation towards Iran. So UAE diplomats were dispatched to Tehran for discussions more than once. Their media rhetoric towards Iran following the tanker attacks, which are largely attributed to Iran, just to be clear, from 2019, their media tone shifted and they really tried to pursue de-escalation, just not wanting to be caught into the crossfire of a broader escalation between the United States and Iran. Israel doesn't quite view it this way. Israel's primary concern around Iran is its nuclear program. And again, they're also not very convinced by the by the JCPOA. For the UAE, it's it's a broader set of concerns as well. They're concerned not only by the nuclear issue, but by Iran's ballistic missile program, by its support for these regional non-state actors. And because they feel like they're in a position of vulnerability vis-a-vis Iran, they're more willing to pursue de-escalation than, than Israel is. So yeah, while their threat perceptions are the same, the way that they've dealt with the Iranian threat is different. I think the UAE is much more willing to support talks around not only the the JCPOA, even though they feel the JCPOA has been inadequate to address the Iranian threat, they are much more willing to pursue a track of dialogue and diplomacy, purely because they see themselves as much more vulnerable than Israel does. This takes me to Saudi Arabia. Obviously, Saudi Arabia was expected to follow the UAE and Bahrain and formally normalize relationships with Israel. Why hasn't that happened, in your opinion? I think this just shows us that the different Gulf countries really do have their own calculations. Saudi Arabia hasn't seen it as in its interest to pursue normalization yet. This is for a variety of reasons. Perhaps it would be domestically unpopular. Perhaps MBS just prefers to focus on the economy for now and other domestic issues. 
it's likely a combination of these two things. If it does happen down the line, I think Saudi Arabia would want certain key concessions from Israel, which, uh, which are different to those from the UAE. I think the reality is we don't really know for sure what Saudi's calculation is, if it's planning to do this at a later stage. But I think there's no doubt that they will want certain concessions uh, in exchange for normalization. And it really remains to be seen what those are exactly. But do you believe Saudi may be actually meeting with Israel behind the scenes? We do get the sense that Saudi still kind of flirts with Israel. If we take the recent example of the Olympics with the Saudi judo player Tahani Kahtani choosing to actually face the Israeli player right after two other Arab athletes chose to withdraw from the competitions for falling matches that brought Israelis to face them. I think one thing we have to remember is that the ties between the UAE and Israel didn't start at normalization. They had been building up in the decades prior to normalization, particularly with the UAE's growing reliance on Israeli technology in areas of cybersecurity and surveillance. The same is true to some extent of Saudi Arabia. I think we need to also be clear that they do have some ties under the table with Israel. For example, when there was a large cyber attack on Aramco, they relied primarily on Israeli technology to kind of salvage their systems and work through that. So it's not to say that there are no ties at all. I think it's just Saudi Arabia prefers to keep them under the table for now and to keep them quiet. And do you feel like Saudi Arabia has a similar kind of position towards Iran? Are they on the same page with the UAE? They are in terms of viewing Iran as uh, as a security threat. They are also concerned by its ballistic missile program, particularly whether Iran is going to transfer certain new technologies to non-state actors across the region, which will be in turn used to more effectively target Saudi Arabia. So they're worried about Iran's transfer of missiles and drones and that kind of technology to the Houthis in Yemen, who have already been targeting Saudi Arabia through pretty regular attacks across the border. They look at the Aramco attacks of 2019, and they also worry that this kind of thing could take place with greater frequency and with greater precision even. So yes, they're certainly worried about that. They're worried about Iran's power projection across the region, its support for non-state actors. They also feel encircled by Iran. Um, So it is the the same threat perception, but I think the UAE views itself as slightly more vulnerable, whereas Saudi Arabia, just because of its size and its location, really, has a bit more weight. And finally, what do you foresee for the future? Do you anticipate more Arab countries, especially in the Gulf, to follow suit? Not necessarily. I think we have to wait and see. Kuwait, for example, has very vocally rejected normalization. Its parliament has come out and said that any entity that normalizes ties with Israel, any private entity that that tries to engage in trade with Israel is going to be committing a crime. Kuwait's parliament has actively penalized any ties or interactions with Israel. I think sending a clear message, they're not planning to establish diplomatic relations with them anytime soon. In terms of the others, Qatar possibly, I think they do typically want to distinguish themselves in foreign policy from the UAE. So I don't think we're going to see them to be in a rush to do that. Uh, Amman, possibly. Amman has always tried to be a neutral uh, mediator in the region. I think there may be a a possibility that they will want to establish ties. I think it it remains to be seen. One thing I will add is that the talks taking place in Baghdad at the moment are an extremely positive development. Iran is at the dialogue table meeting with various Gulf states. It's meeting with Emiratis. It's meeting with the Saudis. 
There's just been a meeting between Turkey and the UAE, which are effectively regional rivals. At the beginning of the year, we had the Al-Ala Declaration, which brought an end to the boycott between the three Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Bahrain, and Qatar. And very recently, we also had a meeting between Qatar and the UAE, which is extremely positive. So I think in general, the mood in the region has shifted in the past year. I think the region came so close to the brink of conflict under the Trump administration that now with the incoming Biden administration, there is much more willingness for the various countries to sit at the dialogue table and actually talk. And I think what we're seeing now is an extremely positive development and hopefully will lead to more de-escalation between the Gulf states and Iran and between all the other conflicting parties in the region. Elham Fakhro is a senior analyst at the International Crisis Group. She focuses on security, conflict, and governance in the Gulf region. She spoke with Bominas Mira Nabulsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.